I promise you there'll be a lunch hour pretty soon when you can really get into these conversations. It'll come about 2 o'clock because it's a long sermon. Um, I'm only serious. Hey, if you got in here without one of these, you're going to need it this morning. Uh, so slip up your hands and uh, Mike will, will run them to you and you'll want to you'll have that to work through it. If you, um, if you were not here last week um, or if uh, you were asleep during the sermon time, it happens, uh, I want to really encourage you. After today, go and listen to part one of this series because you'll see that um, uh, it's not related topics, it's continued topics. We're actually building off each week. So make sure you go and onto our website, windoverhills.org, and listen to that, and you'll be able to catch up, and it'll make a little sense, though I'm going to do a little review here. Good. Everybody got one? All right. Perfect. You've been enjoying the Olympics? Do you get into that? Watching the Olympics? Yeah. Yeah, it's on just about every night uh, in our house. Do you know uh, yesterday the, the total that the U.S. got in the medal count is the highest they've ever received off uh, on foreign soil. So it's uh, been, a, a, I guess, a good Olympics by those standards in the medal count. And I'll tell you how I know that is they have this neat little thing that's called the medal count. And there's one country with the medals and a country two, and it goes all the way down every single country. And when I look over at the total of the U.S., it's like the highest total of the other. So it's easy for me to say they are winning in the medal count. In fact, you, you might be into sports, and I would guess in just about every sport that you like that there's probably something called a scoreboard somewhere on the field, or if you're watching it on TV, the screen so that you always know what the score is. I was amazed when I was young that my mom would have the Braves game on in the afternoon when it started at 4 o'clock on the, on the West Coast. And she would have the games on when I would come home from school. And she had probably had it on an hour or so when I got home from baseball practice. And I would always ask my mom, well, what's the score? And you know that every single time my mom would say, I don't know. I, I don't know. But for the most of the rest of us... There's a scoreboard, and you know what's going on in the game, and you know who is winning. Sometimes I go to Little League baseball fields where there's no scoreboard, like eight-year-olds playing on the field, right? And the kind of the rule of the league at seven and eight years old is you don't keep score. You, you know, you get to the minor majors, um, but the little guys don't keep score. They're just out there to learn and have fun. And yet there's some parent in the stand that says, well, we're winning 14 to 5. I know, I know that. I've been keeping track. Can I just ask you something before we jump into this morning? How do you know if the church is winning? How do you know in the church world if you would say, yeah, that, you know, that church is kind of winning? Now, not winning in the competitive sense like, you know, we're beating another church that has nothing to do with what we're discussing. But how do you know if you go, man, things are going well the church is, is winning. Well, there's been some traditional uh, measuring uh, sticks to some of that. The first thing would be numbers, straight numbers. If your church was 100 last year and you're 150 this year, you're winning. You're winning, doing well. Another uh, measuring rod ha- has been things like um, giving. If your giving is very strong in proportion to the size of church, then, then you're winning, Doing well. 
Another one has been youth ministry numbers. 10% of the church number in youth ministry. So if you're a church of 100, having 10 in your youth program, pretty solid number. Man, we're pulling 17, 20, 21%. You can say, hey, we're winning. We're winning. There have been measuring rods like this. Here's the difficulty that we find. Just recently, I told you about a, a big, big uh, George Barna, which is a Christian statistician, a, a big survey that was just released, and I told you it was coming out in book form. It's now out in book form. If you're so interested, you can go down to see my friend Ray at Limstone Christian Store, and he can get you a copy of this. I just got sent it in the mail. And can I tell you, when I look through the stats, despite the stats that some numbers are increasing at churches or some youth ministries are strong or even some giving is strong, across the nation of the U.S., in nearly every stat in that book, we're losing, declining. And so this morning, we're going to just ask the question, uh, really, is how do you know if you're really winning And you'll see how it fits into this disciple shift thing that we're talking about. And how basically what we're saying is, listen, our number is important. Yeah, we want to see the church keep growing. We've talked for a long time about a church of 200, getting to 200. We're not there yet. It it depends on us inviting and bringing and the Lord transforming and speaking into people's lives. We want to keep working towards that. But instead of looking at some of those traditional stats, we want in this disciple shift to talk to you about what our aim is and our goal is when you ask the question, is the church winning? So let me just recap really quick where we were at last week. I know this this font is a little smaller, but I need to take this off so you can see the bottom thing in a few minutes. We talked about last week, what's a disciple? And we walked through a key verse. Anybody remember what that verse is? One person said, yeah, sheepishly. Um, Matthew 19, follow me, Jesus, 419, excuse me, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of people. Follow me. And we said, okay, the follow me, when we broke this down, is a commitment. Like there is a commitment level. At some point you say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. You make a commitment, and that's the head level. That's you kind of thinking it through and saying, I'm going to follow this. Mo- emotion might have been involved but you're making a decision, a commitment. And then we said that I will make you that this is Jesus's role to transform us and to change us and to make us new. And, and every single one of us in here, you know a time where Jesus was challenging you to make some changes in your life. Get rid of this, start this, spend more time here, transformation in your life. And we said that's the heart level. I know there's no heart here, but the heart's located somewhere around here, even on a stick figure. That's the heart level. And we said heart because we often use that word heart to signify this is the the wholeness of who I am. I I love God with all my heart, with everything in me. And Jesus is transforming us for completion in that. And then we said fisher of people, like this is the hands and feet side of it. This is the mission that God has not said, hey, I want you to love me and I want to transform you so that you can you know, stay in your house and put up new backsplash in your kitchen. That, that wasn't his ultimate goal for you. He says, I have a mission and purpose for you to go out and to share my name and to share hope into people's lives. And so we talked about that being the hands and feet. And so that's our, that's our overview If you weren't here last week, don't take that as the full overview. I encourage you to go and to check out the rest of the message. 
This week we're going to walk through something totally different. We're going to walk through this thing called the stages of discipleship. When I was, I cannot keep this on my ear this morning. There we go. Um, when I was coaching in 1998, I took my first college baseball coaching position, and uh, I interviewed on a Tuesday. I was on the field on a Thursday, and I went out to see this, this team. Now, in the history of that school, this team had won 19 games in a season once. Now, usually you schedule about 55 games in a college baseball season, so you can see a, 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 a under 500 winning percentage one time. The next best after that was 11. You know, the first five years of this program, which was only about 15 years old, the first five years of the college baseball program, they were over. You know what I mean when I say over? No wins, five straight seasons before they won a game. Can, can you understand uh, where baseball ranked uh, uh, at that college? Nonetheless, I was out on the field on a Thursday afternoon, and I had just come from playing four years in a top 25 baseball program, um, playing a, a little. I mean, I had a jersey and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I could tell you what the dugout looked like for sure. Um, but as I came and I, and I was on the field that Thursday afternoon to coach this team, I looked out on the field and my first thought was, oh boy, oh boy. So we ran through the practice and we went home and my wife asked, well, how, how'd it go out there? How was it the first day? I said, man, are we going to take our lickings this season? Now, the Lord's so blessed, and we actually won 25 games that first season with uh, what we had. But what was I really doing is I was going on the field, and I was evaluating what do I have to work with? What does the team look like out here? And everybody, no matter what sport or what thing you do that has a team, you are evaluating what do I have to work with? Do I have a quarterback who can throw the ball? Do I have somebody that can run the ball? Do I have somebody that can pitch? Is there anyone on this team that can actually shoot the basketball? You're evaluating your team when you look at it. So the question for us this morning is, let's evaluate our team. In any church, not just Wendover Hills, in any church, God has put a team together. And we're at different stages of where we're coming along in discipleship. Part of last week's message was to tell you that discipleship doesn't just happen. Once you come to the church, you plug in, you start doing a few things, you might start serving, and then we say, oh, hey, we should disciple them now. Discipleship is for every single person in the church. And so this week we want to say, well, who are we talking about when we talk about every single person? What is the team? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk you through this graph that looks a, a bit like this. You have it on the bottom of your bulletin or your program, your sermon notes this morning, and you can kind of fill in the blanks as we go around. Now, I want to say up front, it's very difficult in a group of 170, and, and really this, this, this is set up for any church, to categorize everybody perfectly into five different segments here. It's nearly impossible. There's overlap, there's back and forth, there's all that kind of stuff. But for the sake of general, generalizations this morning, I want to walk you through just five categories. My job is to walk you through it and explain it so you understand what we're talking about. Here's your job. Your job is to put on your self-evaluation mode right now. To let, let God really ask you the question, where do I fall in there? How do I really function with my Christianity? Where am I at in my allowing myself to be discipled and to grow up in my Christian walk? 
and kind of figure out how you fit on here. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think you all can walk through that. Here's the first one that we just simply, we simply call up here is spiritually dead. I'm going to put an S for spiritually. These are all spiritually oriented. Spiritually, that's somewhat readable. Let's give it a a second try. Spiritually dead. And basically what we mean here is this would be, the first stage is this is somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, uh, it doesn't mean like they're, you know, uh, an ignorant human being on the face of the planet. Don't, Don't confuse this here. We're just simply saying at this point in their life, they don't have a walk with Jesus Christ. They've never said yes to God, to follow God. Maybe they've been in church. Maybe they've heard the word. Maybe they've never heard anything about it. But they don't have a walk yet with, spirit, with Jesus Christ. We just simply call the defining word is unbelief. They don't know Jesus Christ. Or clever words like pre-belief with the hope that one day they'll know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But that's our first stage. This is, this is the first stage of discipleship because what we believe is the Holy Spirit and God is so interested in every person knowing him as their Lord and Savior that he is already devising a plan to go out and to minister to them, to share with them, to reach them. He uses you, he uses me to speak hope into their life, to be a blessing in their life at times when there might be a struggle, a difficulty, to just to talk, to be available. He also just uses his Holy Spirit to speak to them. We call it provenient grace. It's the grace that goes before salvation in a way that the Holy Spirit speaks and challenges and draws that person to them. But really still the defining thing is, is unbelief. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. This is Paul, the apostle, is writing here. Once you were dead because of your dis- disobedience and your sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's a spirit at work in the heart of those who refuse to obey God. Let me just pause there for a second. Those are hard words for our contemporary culture to, to read. Because in our postmodern thinking, we are moving away from absolutes, which means we are moving away from the idea of calling things disobedience or calling things sin. And we certainly are moving away from labeling anyone in really any area, especially if it sounds negative. But these are the words of the Bible and how Paul describes somebody who is defined as unbelief. Verse 3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So, spiritually dead, unbelief, we haven't quite said yes to Jesus Christ yet, surrendered our life. We were all there at one point, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And then there was this, this born-again experience, as God's Word calls it, that we're born again, we're made new in Jesus Christ through... There we go. 
That'll work a little better. Nice. That we, we said, uh, we just acknowledged, Lord, I've lived disobedient to you. I've lived my own way. I, I've seen what that brings my life. And I, I want to live for, for you. I want to follow you and you be the Lord of my life. We call that a born-again experience. And for every single one of us, once we become born again, we, we move into the second stage, and we, we call that the spiritual infant. It's the spiritual baby. You're a new believer in Jesus Christ, right? Uh, you, you come into this, and it's wonderful, and you're excited, and you, you, you just believe the message of Jesus Christ, but you would still be defined as a spiritual infant. And the... the characteristic of a spiritual infants is this word ignorance. Now, we like to use that ignorance sometimes as a derogatory t- term. That's not what it means here. It just simply means they're new Christians. They don't know everything yet. They would say things like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Oh, I really didn't know how significant the church is and the church family can be in my life. Oh, I, I didn't know reading the Bible could be of benefit to me. It's those type of things. As a spiritual infant, it's brand new. This is an exciting time when somebody comes to know Jesus Christ. And so can you see in, in the world of discipleship, building into somebody, how incredibly this, important this stage would be? That when somebody says yes to Jesus Christ, that we need to now build into their life and share with them things, to teach them, to train them, to show them the significance of the faith and the things of the faith, even the disciplines of the faith. Sadly, this is what we do often in the church world, is we work so hard here, and we work so hard to obtain this born again, and then somebody becomes a Christian, right? And we baptize them, and we celebrate, and and we do what we do in that area. And then you know what happens? They're often kind of left alone to figure it out, figure out how to advance in this. And if three weeks down the road... Three weeks down the road, they say something or do something that doesn't sound very Christian. We're like, well, maybe it didn't take. Maybe it didn't stick. Maybe it didn't happen. Did you know that recently Michael Phelps was handed a copy of The Purpose Driven Life and made a spiritual commitment? And yet, it's still easy to look and say, I mean, here's a guy. He's got a baby. He's not married. You know, remember... If that's true with him making a spiritual commitment, he's a spiritual infant. Now's the time for somebody to build into his life. Now's the time for somebody to start discipling and training him and teaching him the ways of God and the ways of God's word. And we haven't always done that very well in the church world. What we're talking about here at Windover Hills is when we look at discipleship, that we want to look at this category for sure, and we want to see every person that becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, that there's uh, almost like a checklist, if you want to call it that, but there is a, there's a road we want to walk them down and disciple them the moment they become a Christian. That's good news for you. Because as much as we talk about going out and being a blessing, inviting your friends to come to church, I want you to know when they become a Christian that there will very clearly be a, a system in place to start building them up and growing them and speaking into their life so their Christianity would stick. Often Christianity doesn't stick, not because somebody says, tried it, don't really like that. It's because they say yes to Jesus, 
and then they have no idea what to do and where to go from that point, and no one there to actually speak into their life and share with them. First Peter 2, 2 through 3 says, Like newborn babies, you crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's goodness. We want to offer that spiritual milk to new believers. And you know what? Some of you are phenomenally gifted in this way to relationally connect with people and to build into their life. And if that's you, I can tell you right now, God wants to speak into you and call you up to discipling an infant believer. But then there's this other phrase. We, we, we keep going this, this other stage. And as you might be starting to guess, this infant then goes into a child. Now, several of you are parents, so you kind of understand children. You understand the children world there, right? And uh, how to raise your children, work with your children. And if you do, you probably know one of the defining characteristics of children is this word, selfishness. One of the defining qualities of a child Christian is still selfishness. Now, before you start immediately thinking, well, that's just negative, a bunch of selfish, you know, no good, conceited. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're saying is as they have become an infant and they start to grow and learn in this and start to, to plug into their Bible and plug into praying and start to understand the things of the faith, they move into being a child Christian. Just like your baby one day becomes a child, they're no longer a baby. You look at them walking in on Sunday morning and I say, wow, I can't see baby anymore in your son or daughter. They're like full-blown child now. That happens in the spiritual journey as well. Now, what we find here a lot of times with the children is there's still somewhat of a self-focus in that. Christianity for me type of focus. And this is, this is an important stage they're walking through, so don't look at it as all negative as they're growing. Just like my child right now, as a 7-year-old, 8-year-old, 9-year-old, I would not expect them to kind of have a completely selfless worldview entirely. It's part of their development where they're at as they're growing and they're learning. The same thing happens in the spiritual journey. So starting in the spiritual journey, guess what we start to do? We start to teach them. We start to teach them about the things of God in the way of mission and purpose and ministry and serving and the things that, that actually take us to where we're loving someone else and serving someone else and starting, as, as Philippians 2 says, to raise and lift people even above our own needs. We start to speak into them. Now, I want to give you a little warning here. This child category, this is the widest net of these five. The widest net. Because on one level, we're excited about somebody becoming a child Christian, right? They're, they're newer to the faith. They're starting to grow and, and love God and plug in and read their Bible and, and be a part of the disciplines of the faith. And those are exciting, exciting things. But what happens when somebody is a child Christian and they're going on 10, 12, 15 years in the church. And at 15 years of being a Christian, we would still define them by selfishness. I like that music. I don't like that music. It was hot in the day. It wasn't, no, it wasn't very hot there today. I'm not going to go back to that. Um, where we start to think about things from a consumer standpoint. They, the church either has for me or the church does not have 
for me. Can I just tell you that in the contemporary church world especially, this has been one of our greatest dangers. That when we live in a consumer-driven church focus, it is like looking at the movie schedule and saying, that sounds really good to me, I'm going to go see that movie. That doesn't sound as good to me, I'm not going to go see that. And there's a danger when we plan that into church. But so often we see that some people get caught up in the child stage. And they're in the child stage a long, long time. In fact, I would guess, even right now as I'm talking about it, if you're putting on, if your self-evaluation tool is really working right now, that you might start asking yourself, I've been in the church world a while. Do I I fall into this category sometimes? Am I consumer-driven in this? Do I think about the church in terms of what can the church do for me? What does the church have for me and for my family? Now, often we disguise that by saying, what does the church have for my kids, for my teenagers? But it's still another form of the same question. If we're not careful, we can get caught up in this child stage and we can never get out of it because we stay focused on ourselves. Hebrews 5 12 says it this way regarding this. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basics about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Now, can I just tell you, having been in the church a while, a big fault in this has been the church. See, because often, even if we speak into to infants and help them when they become children's Christians and we start helping them get into small groups and Bible studies and grow, sometimes we've lost the individual connection and the family connection at this point, and we just assume they're here. I mean, they, they came. They even serve every once in a while. They must be growing and doing well in their Christian walk. And what we're talking about in this disciple shift is making sure as we become children Christian here, that that's just a stage that we go through to move on, and it's not one we get caught up in. And that takes a discipleship and a teaching and a challenging in the different areas of what it means to move past being a child Christian. So what would that next stage be? It would be the young adult. It's moving on to the young adulthood. Now, I have a 17-year-old, young adult kind, I guess. Next year, he'll be heading off to college, and we're, we've been visiting colleges. We've been looking at dorm rooms and things like that, and, and, like, and I'm already picturing and imagining the day like when I drive into the campus with him and his stuff, and he's not coming home with me, right? I mean, on one hand, I, I know as a dad who is a, a, a friend as well to my seven, I mean, we enjoy being together and doing stuff uh, together. Like, that'll, that'll be like a, a stinger, Um, on the other hand, I mean, like it opens up, you know, a little bit more in the grocery bill, things like that, that I'm looking forward to. (laughs) He's right here. Oh, but a young adult here, basically what, you know, what is a young adult in our life is a young adult is basically what you're doing is saying, Hey, I'm going to stay close to you and kind of watch here, but you got to go play life now. You've got to kind of get out and start making the decisions and doing these things Put into practice all we've trained you, all we've spoken into your life up till now and taught you, put it into practice. When we talk about this in terms of a spiritual young adult, this word starts to to take over. It's the word mission. 
This is the defining difference between a child Christian and a young adult Christian is a young adult Christian starts to define their Christianity with mission and purpose. That God has designed us to do something with our Christianity. And so mission comes into play. How do I serve God? Not how do I serve every once in a while. How do I serve God? How do I serve the mission that he would have? How do I be a blessing in other people's lives? How do I surrender myself for the good and for the sake of others? Mission starts to come in. Can I just tell you, this is kind of a tough stage. And as I said at the beginning, it's hard to to classify people like you're clearly here, you're clearly there. It's very easy to see how you might go back and forth a little bit here. Back and forth as you're learning and as you're growing and as you're understanding being focused on God's mission rather than myself and maybe my mission. Here's what Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. You know what Paul is saying as he writes that there is he's saying, this, this is the quality of a young adult Christian here. They're starting to understand how to look to others and to put their interest above even their own and to start serving God in that capacity. You know, this is, uh, uh, this is easy sometimes when God challenges us and we get excited about it, and it's hard at other times. And so when I look at this, I think, you know what, young adult Christians, they need to be built into as well. They need to be discipled. Because sometimes as a young adult Christian, you might get a little frustrated. Well, you know, I wanted to build into somebody else. I wanted to spend time with them and teach them about God, but I'm not seeing them grow at all. I'm getting a little frustrated here. You can see how a young adult might still need to be talked to and encouraged. Stay at it. Keep discipling them. Keep speaking into their life and trust that God will do his work. The mission here. Are you a young adult Christian? When you look at it, would you say... Yeah, I think that that defines me, God's mission, God's purpose, God's focus. Can I just tell you, I am amazed how often, from from believers, um, that I see, like, complaints on Facebook. Like, I mean, like, complaining. Like, I had to wait in line today, you know, behind three people, and it was just terrible. Why didn't they open up another? I mean, this is blasting out for the whole world to see, or at least those on your friends list. From small little things to big little, big little things, big things. Sometimes it's so easy to allow ourselves to kind of sink back in our Christianity to this, to this self-focus. Other than to say, what could God be using? What could God be doing here? Or if God's not doing it, how could now God use this situation in my life for me to serve? for me to, to witness to somebody, to speak into somebody else's life, even if it's a matter of you just showing patience in a situation that I might be speaking the mission into there. Well, there's a final stage I want to talk to you about here, and as you've been following this, you might have guessed it already. It's, it's a spiritual parent, spiritual parent here. Now, notice we said a spiritual parent, not a spiritual adult there. And, and that's on purpose here. And the reason for a spiritual parent is what we're talking about in the discipleship process is that our ultimate desire and goal, a biblical goal here, 
in the church world is that people would disciple other people. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says this in your program. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. You know what Jesus is saying there? Be a spiritual parent. Go disciple people. Make disciples. And just like a parent births somebody, has a child that they build into, so here what we're talking about as a spiritual parent is, is birthing other believers, or not believers, other disciples, and building in to other disciples. Now, I want to be honest with you here, and last week I shared with you where I had this, this wrong view of discipleship. This was my view. I, I walked the staff, the board, and a group of leaders through this, and all three of them I confessed the same thing. Uh, this was my lead. If you, if you could view a baseball field here, and you've got the field, and you've got dugouts on the side, and then you have stands for the spectators, right? So you can visualize that. I've looked on there, and I've often asked people, uh, where do you fit into the discipleship game? Are, like, are you on the field playing? Are you in the dugout? Um, or, or like you are on the stands kind of observing and watching and thinking, maybe someday I'll be a part of the team. And people have answered, and the board, the staff, and, and key leaders have answered and put themselves in various spots. But this is when I, where I've viewed myself. Is there, I'm like in the infield of the baseball field. And I'm running from foul line to foul line, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But it's not because, I've, it's not because I think I'm the only one that can do it. Nobody else can do it. I'm the, I'm the great one. No one else is. It's because I've never let God challenge me to say, Tom, you need to be a spiritual parent in how you're pastoring. That you need to look at the people in the dugout, in the stands, other people on the field, and you need to look at it to say, how do you build into them and to raise them up so that they're playing the infield positions along with you? I just know it's a whole lot easier to play infield when you have four infielders. In fact, the only real win the Wendover Hills softball team ever had in three seasons, I say real because we did have a couple forfeit wins, but the only real win we ever have, we actually went with a crazy strategy. We put five infielders in the field and only two outfielders uh, in the outfield, hoping that they just wouldn't hit the ball in the air to the outfield. And somehow, some way, it worked, and we beat them. So if you drive by Westminster Presbyterian, you just know. Yeah, yeah, we own them. Oh, one in about 28, but there's a one. But I've looked at that, and I basically say, that's not at all to glorify myself. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's to say, Tom... Why don't you just build into other people? Teach them how to do things. Why would you run sideline to sideline? That, that's a terrible strategy for the church. And so you can see as we're talking about the discipleship shift, what we're talking about here is building into people so that they would be parents, spiritual parents. And the, the, the word here is intentionality. I'll just put, put intent. It's intentionality. It's being intent in our purposes and our meeting for the intent of raising up somebody in their own discipleship. 
It's being intentional with an infant believer to bring them into a child, spiritual child. It's being intent with a spiritual child to, to bring them along. It's building in intently into a spiritual adult so that they would be birthing other disciples and making disciples. Now, can I tell you, I know I can't, it's not like I can take 170 names in the church and plug you in. It doesn't work that seamlessly and perfect. But I imagine this morning from a general sense that you could look at yourself and evaluate and say, I think this is kind of where I'm at based on this. I think I love the church and I want to be here, but I think, I think my Christianity has been a little more selfish driven. I, I do kind of think about it in terms of what can the church do for me or what can it do for my family or what does it have for me. And I wonder how God would challenge me this semester to move forward or wherever else you might be. What we're saying is as a church, we're making a disciple shift not to do what I told you last week, come, plug in, start serving, you're doing pretty good. Okay, let's disciple them. But to say on every level, all five of these, how do we now build into people to keep them moving along and discipling them wherever they're at currently in their spiritual journey, even if they don't even know the Lord yet? You can see how that's a shift in our thinking, and it'll show up in our programming. In fact, on your seat this morning, there should have been a card that looked like this. It was small groups. Um, can I tell you that we've, we've always used our small groups and the key core thing we're trying to accomplish, now we accomplish several things, but the key thing we've tried to accomplish is fellowship, connecting people from the church together. And that served pretty well. But what we're saying here is that can, if we only focus on fellowship, it can keep us here in the child Christian stage. And so this semester, all of our small groups we're focusing them different. In fact, we're starting over, starting new with most of our small group, kind of breaking things up and launching new groups. A couple of our groups will keep going like they are, but launching new groups on new nights so everyone would be involved. And the focus of our groups is to help people move along on this. So some of our groups will look a certain way and some of our groups will look different. In fact, there'll be a couple groups that are actually going through the discipleship material that explains this that your staff went through, that your key leaders are going through uh, as well. So here's what I want to ask of you in the next couple of weeks, and you, you can use this, this card in the back side, is a simply you give your information at the bottom, let us know what is the best time for a small group to work for you. And we want to help plug you into one of these discipleship-based groups so that you're being discipled and built up in your faith to keep moving forward in your spiritual journey and not getting stuck in any stage, especially that wide net of a child Christian stage. This morning, in just a few minutes when we take our our tithes and offerings, if you can use this card and you can go ahead and fill it out and mark that now and you can drop it in there, we'd love to connect with you on that. We've been working for a while now on putting these together to look different than what we've done in small groups for the specific purpose of this disciple shift and what we're doing. Well, let me, uh, let me wrap up by praying for you in this area, praying for our church, and then uh, share a couple announcements, and then I'll dismiss you. Father, I thank you for this simple circle and graph with some words in it. But Father, I think the real goal is this morning, if you and your spirit would so challenge us to first just kind of identify, where am I at? Where do I fit on this chart here? If, you're, if your spirit would just be honest and challenge us that we'll receive and accept it, Lord, and say, hey, that's where I'm at. And now, Father, how would you want to grow me and move me on? 
Father, for some people sitting in this room right here, right now, it might even be something, a little stepping out of a comfort zone to be discipled and to grow. It might be a man saying, I don't really like praying out loud, but you're challenging them to get to prayer night, to be discipled that way. Or for somebody who's never had a, been in a small group to sign up, uh, who may have been nervous about being with other people, but you're challenging that way. However it would be, Father, I pray that you would speak and that we would receive, and our answer would be yes. We pray it all in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.